This is Quorum with Quorum's Quorum. I'm very pleased to say that my guest today is Chief Judge James Holderman, formerly of the Northern District of Illinois and a mediator at JAMS ADR. Judge Holderman is someone who made a tremendous impact on me when I externed in his chambers in law school and externing for the judge was an inflection point for me and I feel I've been riding that wave ever since. Here he is. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing great, Chief Judge James Holderman. It's great to see you again. Great to see you. Well, you know, I uh, I recall when I was your extern that you were you were very early to chambers. You like to get an early start, and I know that you grew up on a farm in Southern <laughs> Illinois. I so did. I'm curious, you know, what's the legacy of that experience? You know, I mean, you get up early, and I'm sure that was a, a product of that. But what what did it? What are the experiences of growing up on a farm? How did that influence you in your later career? Well, um, first of all, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, we raise livestock and uh, crops, and uh, that is my heritage. That's my background. I, um, uh, for some reason, though, uh, at age ten, uh, I, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, I, I told my father, who was a farmer and a successful one, uh, that I wanted to be a lawyer, and, and he was adamantly against that. Uh, and I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing. Uh, on that warm summer day uh, at age 10, uh, when I told him, and I never raised the subject to him again. Uh, he, uh, he passed away when I was a teenager, and I um, continued to run the farm, because at that point, I was uh, already in, uh, in college, and um, uh, actually uh, going to the University of Illinois on an agriculture uh, scholarship. Uh, so, uh, I finished my undergraduate uh, career and uh, had talked to my mom after my father passed away about uh, wanting to be a, a lawyer, which he had never mentioned to her. And uh, she said, that's great. Uh, we'll, uh, uh, we'll work things out with the farm and uh, we'll, uh, uh, you, you pursue that career. So that's what I did. And uh, so my background uh, is in agriculture. I, I still love the uh, open setting. I know you can see uh, out my backyard uh, across the, uh, well, now it's a golf course, but uh, a beautiful uh, view. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I think it, it, it gave me a, a discipline that uh, uh, has helped me throughout my career, uh, that you have to... Uh, uh, do things that uh, help uh, others. Basically, we had to make sure the. My, my dad had a saying, you know, we don't eat until the livestock's fed. Uh, and so uh, that's what we were always taking care of our livestock and, and uh, uh, carried that over to taking care of people. Well, so I think that uh, that had to be a pretty unusual experience to have on the bench. I imagine a number of your peers didn't have that experience. And so what are the ways you think that distinguished you from other judges on the bench? Well, I actually, uh, um, I, I did have an experience once where I had a, uh, a hearing with regard to uh, farming equipment. Uh, I forget what it was. It might've been a, a, a patent case. I, I don't recall it, but I remember there was a a person who was purported to be an expert uh, on the witness stand. And uh, it was explaining uh, about uh, certain uh, principles and, 
and, and things. And I, I remember saying to him, hey, I, I've done that. That's not how it works. And he was shocked and uh, uh, <laughs> really had nothing more to say. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think, uh, again, it's just uh, the, the background of, of uh, having to uh, uh, work on the farm just gave me a, a, a basis for uh, and a discipline that uh, helped me on the bench. Uh, and, and yeah, uh, on occasion, my fellow judges did, uh, uh, they had something involving uh, agriculture. They did consult me and I was happy to provide it because I, I did have the experience and the, and the knowledge in the area and still love it. Well, I ask that because I'm kind of curious how that informs your view of diversity in the bench because you know, there's lots of kinds of diversity. And so I wonder, you know, what are the ways you feel that, you know, the bench is diversified and what are the ways you think, you know, we could increase the diversification of views or backgrounds or uh, inclinations of people on the bench? Okay. Well, every judge that comes to the bench uh, comes with a a background of experience that they've had in their lives. And uh, I, I think diversifying the bench is uh, something that we need to do by inspiring and giving confidence uh, to uh, uh, diverse people around the country that, yes, you too uh, can become a, a United States district judge. Uh, you too uh, have a, uh, 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 a contribution that you can make. Uh, and um, I, I, I firmly believe that the, the more experience uh, and, and diverse backgrounds we have on the bench, the better off our country is. So, uh, uh, but, but again, I, I think there are people, well, like yourself, uh, I don't want to embarrass you, but uh, like yourself, who, who, who really have the, the background, experience, and understanding of, of the law and people that would be an excellent judge. And um, uh, we just have to encourage uh, and give confidence to uh, the, those people who desire to do that from uh, diverse backgrounds and experiences and, and cultures, heritages. You know, you started the bench, you you. you you joined, um, you became a federal judge, I think when you were 35, am I remembering this right? Uh, it, it, it was around that, mid-30s. Yeah. I, I think I was 37 or 38, but... Okay, that's, uh, okay, 37, 38. I do the math real quick, but uh, I, I was young. And um, in 1985, uh, I had been personally uh, asked by then-President uh, Ronald Reagan to... Uh, take the bench in Chicago. Uh, I didn't know President Reagan very well. I, I had met him a, a few times. And um, uh, yeah, I, I was young, but I, I, I felt I, I had enough experience uh, uh, practicing law, first as a, an assistant U.S. attorney, and then uh, in private practice, uh, where I uh, handled uh, exclusively federal court cases except some, I did some pro bono in the state court, but my clients were all, uh, f- had federal court litigation. And that uh, is what uh, 
assisted me, I, I think, on the bench. I'd, I'd tried cases. I'd handled appeals. Uh, I knew all the judges on the court. They knew me. And, um, uh, yeah, it, that, that helped me. But, again, going back to the diversity, again, we, we need to encourage uh, uh, people to uh, to get to know their judges uh, th- that where they'd like to uh, serve as uh, as judges and to uh, uh, aspire to that if if that's their desire. You know, on that subject, I think yeah. what's so interesting about the judiciary is the relative lack of understanding of the average citizen of the federal judiciary. Uh, you know, and these really become acute for me. I don't know about you, but they really become acute around Supreme Court hearings or, you know, for confirmations. Um, and so, you know, just the impressions that people have of, of district court judges or, you know, what, what, you know, who are the people that end up on the bench and what are the tasks involved? Um, you know, what, what is what does it mean to be a federal judge? What are the things that a federal judge do, does? And I think importantly, what are the things a federal judge doesn't do? I think that's something that, you know, the average citizen has pretty little information on. And, you know, any given politician, uh, senator, a congressperson, uh, of course, the president or, or his cabinet, you know, these are people that are extensively profiled in the media. But, you know, judges have hardly any of that profile. And so do you feel like, you know, that we need to do more to have the average, you know, we were talking about uh, having, you know, lawyers get to know judges better and then aspire to be in those roles and, and just be better connected. And yeah. you know, I think maybe we've got even an issue with just our, our citizenry, you know, not understanding enough about our judiciary. So I, I wonder, you know, I know that you've taken public interest and public education seriously. You know, what do you think needs to be done or should be done or could be done? Well, yeah, first, I, I agree with you that um, certainly at the district court level, the, the local federal court, uh, uh, the, the judges aren't in the news, uh, and and uh, their tasks really aren't well known. Um, what what federal judges uh, do do is, uh, at least in the in in the federal system, uh, you handle every type of federal case that is filed in your district, uh, both civil, criminal, and um, uh, other types of, uh, of actions. Uh, one of the things federal judges do or do in Chicago is we actually administer the oath to new citizens, uh, people who have immigrated to the United States and um, uh, have uh, passed all the uh, uh, obligations uh, that uh, are necessary to become a citizen if you're not naturally, uh, naturally a citizen having been born here. And so uh, that's a task that people don't know about. Uh, and actually, it's one of those uh, tasks that uh, I've often said, it's one of the few tasks that I have uh, as a federal judge or had as a federal judge where everybody walks away happy. Uh, because uh, in, the, in the typical judging role, um, uh, in the civil side, uh, you have uh, uh, litigants who uh, have differing views about uh, whatever their dispute is, and you have to uh, apply the law to the facts as uh, presented and, and make a determination. Or 
preside uh, over a jury trial where you uh, uh, assist the jury by giving them jury instructions on the law, uh, making rulings on the evidence as to what evidence is appropriately before them, uh, and then uh, entering a judgment on the verdict. Uh, and and uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm a strong advocate of the jury system as the, um, the last resort if uh, people can't otherwise resolve their uh, differences, their civilly. Uh, juries uh, really do try hard to get it right. And um, I've presided over uh, uh, a couple hundred jury trials and uh, interviewed a lot of jurors. And, and so uh, assisting uh, jurors in coming to uh, the conclusion that they believe is right is another task of the federal judiciary. On the criminal side, uh, the other uh, major task uh, is handling a criminal docket. Uh, anyone who is uh, uh, charged with a, a federal crime, uh, and to have it be a federal crime, there has to be some uh, federal jurisdictional link to the activity of the uh, accused. Uh, but uh, you, um, uh, not only preside over jury trials, but then uh, after a verdict, if there is a verdict of, of guilty, uh, then it's your task and, and your task alone as a federal judge to uh, impose an appropriate sentence. Uh, here we don't have the jurors uh, uh, imposing sentences. There, there's only one circumstance where the jurors can recommend a sentence uh, and that is uh, in those crimes where uh, the sentence is the death penalty. And we still have the death penalty in the federal court uh, system. Uh, if you kill a, a federal officer, that the, the potential uh, sentence is death. But uh, other crimes that we have, the... Uh, uh, it, it, it always is up to the judge uh, as to what sentence to be imposed if a person is found guilty by, uh, by the jury. You know, to run with what you're talking about, you know, I think one thing that I was struck with is, I think a perennial thing that is fascinating about the role of a judge are the departures from normal intuitions about how to handle issues, kind of like you were talking about earlier about how, you know, uh, you know, when you preside over, you know, these citizenship ceremonies, everyone walks away happy. And that's not usually the case. You know, I recall that, you know, you, um, you know, when I asked for you, we had a jury trial and I recall it was a patent case and uh, the jury turned a verdict of th that the patent was not infringed, but valid. And you said, you know, I'm not surprised by that because it's often the case that, you know, jurors want to give everybody something. And so, that's true. yeah, so that seems to be a very, uh, you know, your point with us, a very natural human intuition and by implication that the judge has to learn not to do that. So what are some of the ways in which you had to train yourself to depart from those layperson intuitions with how to resolve disputes and do it the way you think, you know, a, a judge needed to apply the law correctly to the facts and, and, and deliver that outcome? Well, and. You're, you're absolutely correct. That is another task of, uh, of federal judges 
in all judges, but uh, my experience is only with the federal uh, courts. And uh, you do need to set aside your own personal feelings uh, and to objectively uh, objectively uh, apply the facts to the law um, and to make a determination as a, a reasonable jurist, not as uh, uh, Jim Holderman, uh, the human being. Uh, and, and sometimes that's difficult, but uh, there are times when um, uh, I, I didn't personally Believe in the particular point that was being made, but I knew it was correct under the law and the facts. And so, consequently, and I really can't give you an example of that right now, but uh, I know it happened over my career. Uh, But um, you you just have to put on your judge uh, thought process and remove yourself. your, your personal uh, beliefs in um, uh, in performing the tasks as a judge. I mean, that's the oath that you take to uphold the Constitution and apply the, the law and facts fairly. Uh, and so uh, you have to put aside biases and prejudices that you might otherwise have in your head. First of all, you have to recognize them. Second of all, then you you put them aside and make a determination that uh, you believe is appropriate under the law from a reasonable standpoint. You know, I'm also thinking about the ways that you refine that over time or, or other, you know, intuitions about how to make determinations. So I can only imagine when you're fresh to the bench, you approached, you know, uh, decision-making in a certain way. And then by the time you left the bench, you saw things a little bit differently. So what, what's the difference between, the judge that first joined the bench and the one that left. All right. Well, um, it's hard to remember back, uh, <laughs> back to those days, but I, I, yeah, joining the bench, I, um, I always had the attitude like, like everyone. I, I wanted to be a good judge. Uh, I wanted to be thought of as a good judge. I wanted to be conscientious and, um, and I worked hard toward that. And actually, those um, concepts and and uh, desires never left me. Um, I, I I do think uh, that uh, over time you develop a perspective that uh, assists you from the standpoint that you've been there before. You've handled one of the you know this type of case before. You, you've seen, um, you, you have the experience and, and you become more, I guess, more comfortable in your decisions mm-hmm. from the standpoint, more confident in your decisions. Uh, you're always hoping that uh, it's right. Uh, and, uh, and, and when there's an appeal, you hope the Court of Appeals agrees with you that it's right. But uh, uh, I, I, I think the my desire to always do the best I could do never, never changed over the, over the 30 years. Um, Was there a a class of problems 
or you know what was there a particular instance you know what, what were the kinds of things as a judge and maybe this is in any any aspect of your role because you know i recognize that you know as the chief judge you had a variety of administrative roles as well but uh you know certainly on the bench and otherwise you know what were the hardest kinds and the most difficult problems for you to solve well i've already mentioned the criminal sentencing uh, i always felt that was because judges have a lot of discretion, federal judges, uh, uh, when sentencing an individual, although the sentencing guidelines uh, put parameters on the uh, discretion. Uh, But I always felt the hardest hardest task I have to try or had to try to do the right thing was imposing an appropriate sentence for the individual and the crime. Um, And Again, that didn't change. I um, uh, I always put a lot of thought into it uh, because you're not sentencing just somebody. You're sentencing this particular individual uh, who um, um, has uh, attributes and talents and potential uh and, and sometimes desire to do the right thing. Uh, I remember particularly uh, uh, difficult uh, were um, the type of federal crimes where uh, the defendant uh, engaged in illegal conduct with children. I mean, that, that just breaks your heart. Um, but to some extent, the pedophiles uh, have uh, uh, some difficult mental difficulty that uh, is not well recognized in the law. And I, I do remember more than once. I mean, I, I sentenced a lawyer who was a pedophile. I sentenced a, a, a Marine veteran who was a pedophile. I sentenced a professor who was a pedophile. And um, they, they actually recognized that they were guilty of what they were charged uh, with. And they all had a desire to, um, every one of them, which was quite, uh, in my opinion, unusual. Every one of them had a desire to try to help medical science figure out what it is uh, that causes them to want very adamantly to engage in that conduct. Um, and, and so I, uh, I, I always did, when I sentenced those uh, folks, uh, I always did say, and, and your job, is to try during the time you serve uh, is to, because they were usually serving at a, a, a facility like uh, the Rochester, uh, Minnesota here in the, in the central country, uh, Rochester, Minnesota uh, facilities. Uh, your job is to help medical science try to figure out what it is that caused you to do this. And 
help medical science figure out how we can assist other people who have that same difficulty overcome it. And every one of them, uh, those three particular uh, defendants that I've talked about from the, uh, their, um, uh, their backgrounds, every one of them grasped that and said, I would really like to do that uh, because I don't know why I am as I am. Uh, and, um, and so th- those were particularly heartbreaking, uh, but um, because obviously they, they did damage to uh, not physical, well, maybe not physical, but mental damage to the children. And uh, they, um, uh, they knew there was something wrong with them. So I, I actually look forward to the day. Hopefully I'll still be around uh, when uh, our medical science can figure out that, that problem. Uh, and so, I mean, you do have to deal with these really painful circumstances that affect you at some level, how do you manage the emotions that, how do you, I mean, what are the ways in which you are able to try to quarantine that to your chambers so that it's not something you take home with you or let it affect you? Like what, what are the ways that you handled that? Well, as you know, uh, uh, having uh, interned in my chambers and having had the experience, I, I, I do talk things over with my law clerks and my interns, uh, and I, I try to get uh, different views uh, of the, uh, a, a particular decision that I have to make, uh, and especially if it's one that touches your heartstrings. Uh, I, I want to get the uh, objective input to the extent I can with the other people whom I uh, have confidence in who who uh, I'm entitled to work with and consult uh, as a federal judge. Uh, obviously, you take into account the arguments of the lawyers um, and their positions, but every lawyer that appears in front of me is an advocate. Uh, every uh, intern and every law clerk that works with me is trying to assist me to make the right decision. Uh, and so uh, that's one of the ways I did it. Uh, but. Uh, uh, as a federal judge, you, you have to follow the law and apply the law, uh, fairly. And, and so, uh, there were times when I felt, well, especially under the sentencing guidelines, I, I felt in this particular case, there, there ought to be some exception, um, uh, either up or down, uh, from the guidelines. But, uh, unfortunately, uh, the Congress of the United States, uh, had imposed these provisions, and it was my job to apply the laws uh, that existed at the time. You know, uh, another reason why, you know, I got to know you better was because you had been so active in the patent bar. And, you know, so it, it was uh, very clear to me that you had a great passion for it and putting a lot of uh, additional effort over and above, you know, your responsibilities as a judge. And I was always very fascinated with that because, you know, I, you know, I've been an attorney in private practice and we're incentivized to do certain things. And and we think about those incentives, you know, quite often. Um, And so I I was always kind of fascinated with the energy put into this thing that, you know, didn't seem to necessarily impact your, you know, your 
role as judge. You weren't evaluated based on you know how many patent cases uh, the Northern District of Illinois litigated. So, right. so tell me about you know how you came to take an interest in that subject matter and and why it was it really meant something to you. Okay, well, um, I don't know that I've ever publicly explained this. So uh, uh, you're, you're getting this publicly for the first time, uh, but it does go back to uh, my childhood. Uh, and it does go back to my father and my farm. My father was a very successful farmer and he was an inventor. Uh, he would uh, tinker, uh, as he put it, uh, with uh, uh, farm machinery at the time. And um, uh, he would come up with ideas. He'd make drawings and he'd, he'd do things. And, and um, I remember at a very young age, about the time I guess I thought about being a lawyer, my, my father had developed some um, beneficial uh, mechanisms uh, for uh, harvesting corn, for planting corn uh, in narrower rows uh, to um, harvesting it so uh, that the uh, the stocks, which are very, uh, uh, well, they, they tangle up easily uh, and, and get the, the corn picked out of the field without a lot of work. And there was a company, it's now no longer in existence under this name, but there was a company called uh, International Harvester. Uh, it was a big uh, farm implement company at the time. It changed its name to Navistar. And, uh, and its research facilities, uh, its national research facilities were, were actually um, in uh, Burr Ridge, Illinois, which is uh, only a, a, a few miles from where I live right now. And um, the arrangement that, that those folks made with uh, my dad was that um, they would give him brand new equipment every year if he wanted it. And all he had to do was to uh, uh, show them his ideas and allow them to try to uh, put them into practice. Well, my dad didn't particularly care for lawyers, didn't know anything about the patent laws, didn't know anything about the, um, all he cared about was, was trying to do farming in a more successful way and, and help others. Uh, and he thought this was great. And I, I specifically remember him telling me how, how wonderful it was and new equipment would be hauled in and all he had to do was turn over his drawings. Well, you and I both know that had I known or had he known what we now know, um, they were ripping them off. And um, uh, that particular experience uh, made me think I, there really is, uh, the, the world needs uh, uh, people who understand the intellectual property laws, because there are a lot of people out there in the world that don't. And we, we need to assist those uh, inspired people who come up with, with ideas to be able to protect them. 
now, as I said, my father was successful. I mean, he, he didn't need to have patents and didn't need to get royalties. Uh, we had a, a nice life. But had I known then what I know now, uh, uh, we had an even, even nicer life. Uh, and so uh, that, that is what, uh, that, that's kind of the thing that inspired me when I became a lawyer uh, my father passed away, but I became a lawyer and I started learning about intellectual property. I mean, I knew it generally like any other kid growing up, uh, but uh, started to understand the uh, the nuances of it. And, and that's that that literally is why I took an interest and became uh, such a uh, interested person, interested judge in that area, and and focused on on those areas. So I, yeah. you're <laughs> you're getting into the deep dark psychology of. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we've known one another. You and I have known one another for a long time, and uh, uh, I, I, you're now uh, getting deep into my uh, uh, my inspirations. But I, again, I guess it goes back to, of course, any human being. You're you're inspired by your background, your experience, and your perspectives, and um, uh, that uh, that is uh, something that I, I guess we all bring to the bench and bring to the rest of our lives. And so, I still enjoy intellectual property. I do a lot of intellectual property mediations. I try to help people resolve their uh, cases. Um, and uh, resolve their disputes uh, w- almost worldwide. Uh, and, and so it's uh, helpful. Yeah, I recently had a mediation where the, the plaintiff's counsel were, was in uh, Frankfurt, Germany. And the, the uh, well, the, the, the plaintiff clients, the counsel were actually in the United States. Uh, and uh, the defendant clients were in Beijing, China. And, and that's one of the benefits of Zoom. Uh, we were able to do that uh, mediation all at one day, all at one time. Nobody had to travel, and uh, uh, it worked out. But that was an intellectual property matter. I want to pick up on on hearing about your experience as a mediator shortly, but I'm kind of curious about, um, you know, with when it comes when I'm thinking about you know the experience of your father. And how he would have benefited, as you say, from work with an IP attorney. And I have, you know, similar stories. Uh, you know, that you know, I can I can talk about, but it's it's kind of a long story about. You know, people oh, I'd love talk. to hear it at some well, point. Oh yeah, it's your podcast, though. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think uh, your story might be a little more interesting. But um, but you know what I think was really interesting to, to pick up on there is there's always this question about I think particularly as an IP lawyer. Um, I think any number of us, if we, if we value our technical chops, we say to ourselves, is this the best use for our talents or should I be on the other side of this table helping, you know, create new inventions? Uh, so I'm curious, you know, like, you know, I think my understanding is the U.S. does proportionally have a high number of lawyers compared to other parts of the world. I don't know how IP lawyers compares to other parts of the world, but um, it sounds like you were still of the view that or of the view that that's okay. It's okay to have plenty of lawyers. We need plenty of lawyers. And, you know, so I'm curious about your, your thoughts on, maybe we can talk about just specifically with IP, you know, do we have too many damn IP lawyers or, you know, is this, is this a good pool that, you know, do we need these people? Well, the, the one benefit is, as you and I both know, is that uh, with a uh, legal education, 
you can do just about anything. And your legal education will benefit you because of the way you learn to think, uh, the way you learn to analyze. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think we have too many lawyers. Uh, um, I, I, I frankly think uh, uh, that it is beneficial to have people knowledgeable in the law. And I, I work with a lot of executives uh, that are lawyers, uh, but don't practice law. Uh, but they they use that background and experience to assist them in whatever uh, other endeavors they're engaged in. So, um, yeah, I <laughs> my father may have thought there were too many lawyers, and I I never knew what his experience was that that made him feel so uh, negative about lawyers. Uh, but because uh, I because literally after he told me that no, don't ever be a lawyer. Uh, when I was age 10, I, I never talked to him again about it. But um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think the world needs lawyers. Uh, and uh, people need the benefit and assistance of uh, understanding how the law applies to their conduct and the conduct of uh, people that uh, they're with and uh, the people they do business with, the people they engage in uh, personally. Uh, so that uh, uh, everyone, uh, everyone's rights are protected uh, and everyone gets the benefit of their own, uh, uh, their own inspirations. You know, I, I can't help but wonder, I think another key point about being a mediator or a judge is this concept of authority. You know, we, we, you know, we're in this democratic society. And so, you know, you know, you and I are, you know, uh, are broadly equal in so many ways. Uh, but, you know, some people are by virtue of this role of being judged, you're just tasked with certain responsibilities and have certain power with it, but that, you know, we're not in some autocratic regime, you know, the, there's limitations on these powers. And I think that's something right. that you and some of your peers in bench have always consistently em- emphasizes, you know, the federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. And, and a lot of what you talked about is the limitations on your, on your powers. So, so, you know, I, I so a key part to the rule, it seems to me, about being a judge is wielding authority and influence. And, you know, there's just this extra legal component to that, the carrots and sticks involved with that. So I'm really curious to hear more about how you approach authority. What are the ways that made you authoritative on the, be- authoritative on the bench? But part of that now I'm wondering is how did that tie into your experiences with your father? Because it sounds like your father said, here, you remember the day you said this to your father. Oh, yeah. No, really I good. remember it was a big moment in my life. Uh, uh, I was crushed mm-hmm. uh, because uh, I had developed this desire. But um, I, I, I guess everyone who's in a position where you can affect other people's lives it, it needs to be circumspect about how you go about doing that. Um uh, and, and no matter where you are, I mean, uh, no matter what country you're in, uh, in my opinion, that's that's what people in authority uh, should do. They should always question uh, themselves whether they're doing the right thing for the people who are affected by their decisions. And, um, and they should always uh, keep in mind how their decisions do affect people. Uh, but uh, 
you and I were talking uh, uh, casually before we started this, and actually, I think the last time we chatted uh, uh, when we weren't recording, that uh, uh, when I left the bench, having had all that power, having been the chief judge, having uh, been the the decision, the, the ultimate decision maker uh, on the court, uh, uh, you know, a, a person who was uh, uh, considered uh, a leader among equals, uh, you know, how that affected me when I left. And uh, a lot of people said, aren't you going to miss the power? Uh, and actually, I don't. Uh, because with the power comes the responsibility to make sure that you are imposing your decisions in a fair and just way. And now I'm no longer the decision maker. I'm now retired. Uh, what I do is try to help people be decision makers. And that's what I enjoy about the mediations. I work with the lawyers. I work with their clients uh, to try to help them come to the best them come to the best decisions for themselves and um, uh, their businesses. Uh, I primarily do business uh, mediations, although I have done some uh, uh, employment mediations. I, I don't do mediations uh, such as family mediations or divorce uh, because I, I never handled that in the federal courts. Uh, federal courts don't uh, handle any divorce cases. Uh, but um, uh, that I, I, um, I've always thought that's the way authority should be imposed. Uh, it has to be done in a fair and just way. And the person with the power needs to constantly question the effect of the power that they're uh, using. Is there anything you've learned as a mediator or experienced as a mediator that would inform you on the bench, like you know, that you wish you knew then on the bench that you know now? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I guess one of the things I've, I've learned and I suspected it on the bench, uh, there, there always is, or maybe I knew it on the bench, there, there always are factors in the decision-making process of people that um, don't, aren't necessarily on the surface. Uh, and I, I guess I did know that when I was on the bench, but I, I couldn't do anything about it. That now it was all I could do is just apply the facts and the law and make a decision and, and move on to the next case. Uh, but now I, I'm able to actually consult with those people, find, consult with people, find out what are those underlying factors that cause you to feel the way you feel about this particular point. Um, and to some extent that adds to the satisfaction of the job that I'm now allowed to do, which is to be a mediator. And uh, uh, so I, I guess being, uh, I tried to be compassionate when I was on the bench. I tried to um, 
use my authority and for the benefit of everyone. Uh, but I, I didn't know those, I suspected, but I, I didn't know uh, all of those little factors that, that go into people's conduct and what causes them to engage in certain conduct. And so uh, uh, I do enjoy finding that out to the extent I can uh, when I'm mediating. Is that a product of your workload? Because, you know, as a federal judge, you've got just this massive docket. And now as a mediator, you're, you're able to be much more selective about, you know, the tasks you take on. So is that just a product of having more time to get to know the parties and what's actually underlying the dispute? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, our federal district judges across the country are, by and large, overworked. Uh, you can't really devote the time to a particular case that you desire to because there's there's always another one coming, uh, and um, or there are a lot coming, and, and so um, uh, I I think. Uh, uh, I am able to focus. Uh, I'm sitting here at my desk and I've got a number of files on my desk of mediations that are coming up. And I am able to focus uh, on helping those particular people in those particular mediations uh, come to the best conclusion for them. Uh, and I wasn't able to do that on the bench because I was the one having to make the decision. And you know, I, I wasn't I wasn't always sure it was the best, but uh, I was confident that I had done my best to uh, apply the law uh, fairly and to find the facts fairly. With uh, the mediation practice you have now, is there anything that says to you, you know, or do you have a do you have an opinion on uh, what are the kinds of matters that are more susceptible to resolution for mediation versus litigation? Um, well, of course, now I, I, I feel that everybody ought to, <laughs> in the civil area, uh, in civil cases, uh, ought to try mediation first, uh, because frankly, uh, there are, um, there, there's, a, there's a lack of communication among uh, disputants. Uh, one of the things I do with my, my, with every mediation is I have a, a an initial uh, conversation, uh, be it by phone or, or now uh, sometimes virtually uh, among the, the parties uh, and the lawyers. And I ask each, each lawyer to briefly and concisely and as objectively as possible uh, explain their client's position. And often I have uh, uh, heard that that's the first time that the other side has really heard a synopsis of why they believe they're right. Uh, and in fact, a, a lot of times, well, not a lot, but uh, several times over the last five years since I've been mediating privately, that when the client hears, oh, that's why they think that way, um, it helps them uh, see the, the nature of the dispute and understand the nature of the dispute and, and resolve it more, uh, more quickly. That, that, 
one moment of uh, an objective explanation, as objective as it can be, without uh, oratory, uh, never happens in litigation. Uh, you file a complaint, and then there's a motion to dismiss, and it's ruled on, either granted or denied. Then there's an answer filed. Uh, then you just start the discovery process, and you, you get documents, and you never really sit down and go, well, what's the real problem here? Uh, and a lot of times, uh, uh, clients don't understand that if they really knew what the other side's concern was, we could get this worked out. You know, we don't want you to have that concern uh, because here's our concern. And um, uh, so that, that, I guess that's another satisfying aspect of, uh, of mediation. And, and, I, and I think it's a service that uh, we provide. So I guess now I, I am more uh, inclined to consider litigation as the last resort and trials as the last resort. Are there things that you think, generally speaking, you know, commercial entities, the kinds of entities that have before you mediation, are there, what are the ways they can short circuit these disputes? Because it sounds like you're saying, uh, you know, there's, you know, a lot of times it's the first time these parties have heard, you know, the other person's point of view. So right. if you were to make a prescription, just generally speaking for a company, because, you know, any companies are going to maybe be repeat litigants. What are the kinds of practices they can put in place that can avoid mediation or avoiding litigation? Yeah, well, that that's a very good, uh, very good question because um, I do believe there there should be in the litigation process a um, an early moment of uh, of mediation or settlement conference uh, where. Um, uh, and, and to some extent, toward the end of my career on the bench, I, I, I tried to do this, where you kind of take the legal mumbo jumbo out of it and, and you get down to the real, the real nub of the problem and uh, try to help the, each side see the nub of the problem to the extent that uh, uh, they can recognize it and, and uh, focus on it. Uh, so I, I would actually, I guess, if I had my uh, my my, uh, my druthers of uh, being able to change the litigation process, I I would say there should be an attempt, or there should be a a, a feature of litigation that requires early on a mechanism of communication that would uh, allow each side to more objectively see the other side's position. Uh, because the, the process that we have now, again, at least in federal court, you know, the complaint, the answer, the discovery, motion for summary judgment, there, there really is no built-in mechanism. Uh, of course, we have settlement conferences and that sort of thing, but um, that's usually later on in the, in the uh, existence of the litigation. You know, it seems to me that in your role as mediator, you know, you were discussing, you know, some of the ways in which you enjoy being able to get more into uh, understanding the clients and, and understanding some of the nuance around uh, the basis of their positions. So it seems right. to me there's maybe a little more creativity involved in this role. So is there is there some resolution or, or type of 
a solution you crafted that you're particularly proud of? Um, well, uh, I, I do believe that um, just generally helping people come to a resolution, and it's their resolution, it's not mine, uh, come to a resolution that works for them. Uh, I guess is the only uh, thing that makes me proud and gives me satisfaction when um, uh, when you actually because everybody when you reach a settlement uh, everybody's a, a little unhappy about it uh, simply because you had to make a compromise but then when you sit back and evaluate the compromise that you made you realize that there are a lot of benefits that you're deriving from that compromise that going forward will benefit you and your life and your business. And to some extent, that's what I try to emphasize to people to litigation is a backward looking thing. You always have to go back and what happened then? And what happened then? Mediation is a forward-looking approach where what can we do to resolve this so we can move on uh, for, for the mutual benefit of the disputants? Uh, and so um, uh, I, that's why I say litigation is the last resort. If you can't otherwise work it out, then that's when you have to litigate and try cases. And don't get me wrong, I, I love being a judge, as you know. Uh, I, I, I love the opportunity to uh, assist people in that way. And frankly, I'm, uh, I, I feel honored to uh, have the opportunity and love having the opportunity that I have now to help people in the way that I'm helping people now. What's surprised the most about your work as a mediator, what's, you know, you probably had some conceptions about it going in and what surprised you? Uh, the fact, I guess the fact that there were so, uh, there are so many underlying factors that didn't come to the surface. That's, I referred to that earlier. I knew there were some, but I, I didn't realize there were so many uh, that, uh, people uh, have in mind. Uh, and every dispute is different. And every individual is different. Uh, just as I said, every individual comes to the bench, uh, uh, every judge comes to the bench with a, a, a different background and experience than uh, uh, every other judge. But um, every other, every individual comes to a mediation with a, a background and experience that's different from every other uh, person in, uh, in the mediation process. And so uh, uh, I, I guess the, the number of factors that you need to take into account and to assist people in recognizing, uh, it's another thing that I guess I enjoy about the mediations where I'm able to help people understand what those underlying factors are that they may not really have in their conscious mind, but subconsciously, uh, if they focus on them, uh, are there to, and, and sometimes are barriers that, that uh, uh, 
uh, don't allow them to uh, uh, resolve the matters uh, more quickly than they, they otherwise would. I'm, I'm just very fascinated with, you know, the shift from, you know, judge, you know, working for the public interest to privacies and, you know, you know, working as a mediator. And so I'm just kind of curious about, you know, in this time, uh, this phase of your career, you know, like what else you're considering or what are other, you know, uh, things you're thinking about in life. And I, I know that you've been friends with Scotch Row for a long time, uh, who's obviously a very well-known novelist. And so I, I am curious, you know, do you miss writing opinions enough that you think you might write uh, some sort of literature of your own? I, I, I don't, I, I don't know. Scott is a, Scott's a very, he is a good friend. Um, in, in fact, uh, uh, Scott took uh, my place uh, at my law firm when uh, uh, I, um, I went on the bench. Uh, he was a uh, uh, former assistant U.S. attorney and, had uh, similar experiences to mine in the U.S. Attorney's Office and, and was a good fit for my law firm who needed a, a person with that type of background and experience. And so Scott and I have been friends for a long time. He is a very talented uh, individual um, and, and a wonderful person. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, uh, people who are famous like, like him um, are um, are a little more difficult on a personal level. Uh, no, I, I I don't think I will uh, engage in the, the the writing of fiction. Uh, I I I enjoy too much working with the the real life of people and uh, helping them. But he is a tremendous uh, uh, tremendous novelist, and uh, I. <laughs> I recommend every one of his books. I think I've read every one of his books and uh, he is, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's a wonderful individual. You know, I'm kind of curious, you've seen so many people on the bench, you know, from other parts of the country, you know, lawyers from different parts of the country. And now as mediators, see people from different parts of the country. Uh, I feel like there's a, I, I feel I've only practiced law in, in you know, Chicago and Boston and, uh, but I got to tell you that, you know, I feel like the affinity uh, of the, the association of bar cultures is very strong in Chicago. And I, I took it for granted that it'd be uh, everywhere in Boston. Uh, you know, in Chicago, there's, there's uh, three organizations I was a part of. The Linen, of course, is, is one, of the, one of the ones. Um, yeah. And also the Chicago Committee and then also the, um, the South Asian Bar Association. So all three of those right. are very important to me. And so I, I feel now I have a, a, some context and appreciation for how very strong the, the bar association culture is in Chicago. So I'm curious, you know, what is your, do you have any views on the different cultures of, of, of uh, attorneys across the country and, and how do, what's the difference between Chicago attorneys? How are they operate differently versus other attorneys in the country? Well, uh, I, I do agree with you that frankly, um, uh, in Chicago, uh, the the lawyers do uh, enjoy uh, socializing with one another and working on uh, uh, legal problems that uh, uh, face the face the country or face the bar in general, as opposed to in individual cases. You, you mentioned the linen of court and the South Asian bar. Uh, I, I've got a lot of friends, obviously, in both, and you were one of the uh, the early members of the Lynn Inn of Court, and and um, uh, 
and of course that uh, that in was uh, created uh, because a uh, a young lawyer uh, had uh, come to know Richard Lynn uh, when she was in uh, Washington D.C. and just found him to be a very nice a, a nice man and felt that uh, uh, it would be appropriate for a, uh, an inn of court to be named uh, after him, got his permission and convinced the rest of us in Chicago. I, I, I had met Richard Lynn, but uh, he wasn't particular. We weren't particularly close uh, at the time. He was on the, the federal circuit, a, a, a judge on the court of appeals for the federal circuit. And I was a district judge. Um, and I, I sat on the court of appeals for the federal circuit a couple of times, uh, at the request of the chief judge. And, um, but now that I've, I've come to know him, uh, and come to see all the lawyers in Chicago who have come to know him, it really is a, uh, it's enhanced the cohesiveness of the lawyers in Chicago. And uh, Richard Lynn was so, uh, uh, I, I guess, uh, thankful and inspired by uh, the beginning of the uh, Richard Lynn in Chicago, that now uh, he's developed a whole uh, uh, organization within the organization of the Lynn's Inn of Court. Uh, uh, the uh, Lynn Alliance of uh, uh, Intellectual Property uh, Inns of Court. And, and frankly, I, 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 of course, have an affinity for the, uh, the lawyers in the, uh, uh, in the intellectual property area. But uh, I, I think they've come to know around the country that they have an affinity for one another. And, and I really think it, it has inspired uh, uh, for the benefit of, uh, of other parts of the country, uh, a communication and a, uh, 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 I, I guess, an assistance of one another that existed, has existed in Chicago uh, for a number of years. And you had the experience uh, and we miss you in Chicago. We have well, to say don't, don't write me off. I might, I might come back. Oh, that's great. Love to have you anytime. Uh, you know, you said that, you know, you said something interesting about litigation being necessarily backwards looking and mediation being forward looking. So I'm kind of curious for yourself, what are you looking forward to? What's, what's, what are you looking forward to this year and the coming years? Tell me about where you're heading. Well, you know, I'm, I'm getting at that point in my life where, um, uh, uh, I'm I'm just getting to the point of continuing to enjoy uh, the things I enjoy, and uh, I really have no aspirations to go beyond what I'm doing now, other than to uh, uh, watch and assist my my grandkids uh, uh, growing up. I, I've got uh, a number of grandchildren, and and uh, they are a, a great inspiration for me because of the, the the joy and the enthusiasm that they have for for their lives. And I I guess, and I guess that's, that's where I am in my life where uh, I, 
I get great pleasure in in watching them grow, watching them develop, uh, watching them become the human beings that uh, and the people and uh, that uh, will benefit society in years to come. Well, uh, I got to tell you, Chief, you've been uh, a big inspiration for myself and uh, you're someone that I've admired for a long time. And so uh, I've always been grateful for time with you. I always feel like I learned so much and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and uh, share experiences with me. Well, it's my pleasure because uh, the feeling's mutual. Uh, you know, one of the, the nice uh, benefits of, of getting to know someone well is that you really do learn a lot from everybody. And uh, you with your experiences and your uh, approach uh, to uh, uh, to life and to the profession and your your tremendous skills as a lawyer, uh, I uh, I find great inspiration from that myself. And so uh, it really has been a pleasure. And I and I thank you very much for allowing me to chat with you as uh, as we otherwise would, uh, uh, other than on this podcast. Uh, this was. Kind of like how we talk to one another when we're talking. Right. So uh, thank you. Thanks, Chief.